Hi, welcome back to a Trafficking Free America podcast. Uh, today we're going to continue our Advocate series, uh, a, a deeper dive, um, and today we're going to be discussing episode two. Uh, our guest today is Ori Freeman. If you've watched episode two, you've been introduced to Ori um, and, and her story of when she was first trafficked. Um, and we're, we're going to hear a lot more about Ori. If you want to go back to season one of a Trafficking Free America podcast, she actually shares her entire story, like a lot more details. It's a three episode, um, uh, uh, season. And then with a fourth episode and talking of, you know, our founder and uh, CEO, Kevin Malone, talking with her about how we can do better prevention. Ori is actually an advocate herself. She is an abolitionist who is helping educate others around like the truth of human trafficking, how it actually happens. And she's helping uh, many, many young um, ch- uh, kids, like teenage um, and a little bit older and, and sometimes even younger to really ultimately understand their value um, and help prevent them from being groomed or going into the life like many in many ways she was uh, pulled into it. So um, we're excited to talk to Ori and uh, kind of get a deeper dive into understanding how the church should really respond to episode two of Advocate, and um, and we dive into a little bit more about how how her life um, was transformed by others, and how the church can ultimately help transform lives as well um, when they have Christ behind them, when they have this Christ-centered mindset uh, going forward to, ulti- to ultimately, you know, uh, help the marginalized, help anyone they interact with. It's a, it's a discussion about knowing certain signs, knowing how to um, uh, combat it by basically developing relationships with anyone we encounter, as Christ has really called us to. And so she gives uh, some really cool um, insights as to how she does this in her everyday life and how we can also do it ourselves. So without further ado, let's uh, get into our interview with uh, Ori. Well, thanks, Ori, for joining us today. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure always to uh, speak with you and talk with you. I know that our audience is like eager to hear from you and, um, and hear some more stuff from you as well after watching episode two of Advocate, which is, you know, a hard part of your story and whatnot. But I want you to go ahead and let the audience know, like, what's, what's, who is Ori? What's going on with your life right now? Where is God taking you and everything? I'm actually currently living in Texas and I was definitely called there by God. And, you know, a lot of redemption has happened there. I will be very honest with the audience. I think that people don't recognize that survivors can't heal until they're out of surviving. And so although I was in California doing a lot of work for the past almost 10 years, I just was still surviving. And that was the biggest thing my therapist talked about is that when I get to Texas, she wanted me to thrive. Because you can be very busy, um, you can be full of, you know, doing a lot of advocacy work, but it was good chaos still. And I didn't even realize as soon as I moved to Texas, my life got stable, my life got quiet. That's when the PTSD came in. And it's so funny how God works because my first day up there, I got in an Uber and it was a veteran for over 25 years and he was in Iraq and everything. And he talked about how it wasn't until he got out of the service to when his PTSD started. And so I realized being in Texas recently was like, I needed God more than ever now because this was the healing process. It's easy to, as as difficult and as hard as it can sound for people that might not understand what it's like to be trafficked or to live a life of consistent chaos and pain and trauma, um, it's easy to choose the easiest way out. 
it's easy to do the things that um, that you're known that you know how to do. It's very much hard, and it takes a lot of courage to heal. It takes a lot to face yourself, to face the things that you've been through. And so that's where I'm at right now. I'm definitely in a reflective part of my journey. Um, God has definitely done, have given me a lot of revelation just living in Texas and raising my daughter. You know, I'm sitting here in my grandparents' house where I lived when I was fresh out of the life. And they were sent to me by God. I would not be where I'm at if God didn't send people to love me and people to show up for me in my life. Um, I believe in the power of unlikely relationships. And he's used people to show his love to bring me closer to him. And so while living in Texas right now, I'm currently in school for philanthropy. So I'm doing a lot of nonprofit management. I'm doing grant writing and learning the business side of things. I'll probably be going to graduate school after um, and start applying next year. Um, you know, I'm raising my daughter. I think the biggest thing I read something today in the devotional is that sometimes it feels like I'm not getting any progress right now because of all the different puzzle pieces are being placed together. But I think I'm doing the most important work and that's the work on myself. I can't pour from an empty cup. And I think a lot of times so many of us want to help and we want to pour out, but we haven't been poured into. Um, we haven't took the time to really heal, to really focus on our healing. And so a lot of things that although I was advocating and I was doing so much work, I was advocating from a place of pain and not from a place of healing. And so now I'm able to look at relationships and interactions with the youth that I work with. So I did, I recently just did actually a presentation the other day. Um, I spoke, I was a keynote for young boys who are incarcerated, who are fighting juvenile life. Some of them are getting released and I didn't see perpetrators. I didn't see um, men who had, young boys who might have the crime that they committed. I seen young boys who who are broken, who come from broken homes, who had stories. And so the only thing that I could give them that was the most important thing is how they move forward. How do you propel forward and what that looks like? And you have a choice now. And so I was able to speak from the heart and being a woman, uh, being a female to another male, to being to young men, they hurt me. And so I'm just in a place of, of healing. It's It seems so small maybe to especially society and to the world right now where we're at, but it's a huge thing. I think my number one focus is the Lord and my focus is my, my relationship with him because I know him as my savior. I, I know him as a savior because he rescued me. He's the only one that rescued me, whether if he used people um, because he used people, but I know him as my savior because he saved me, but I'm getting to know him as my father. I'm getting to know him and respecting him as my king. And that's just the truth about it. You know, I know him as saving my life. I know what it's like to be in a bed and I need it, you know, to get out of it. I know what it's like to jump out of a moving vehicle or escape the hands out of a trafficker or a buyer. Um, I know what it's like to be saved and delivered from drug addiction and those things. But I didn't know who he was as my comforter and as my father and someone that I could depend on and that I can call out to and that could be my best friend. And I surely didn't respect him as my king. And see, that's a different relationship as well. And so being in Texas has definitely given me time to really just rest. I think every survivor needs a, a time to rest and to restore because it's so much stuff. You know, I'm 28 years old and, you know, getting in maybe to a relationship that was really healthy. I realized that I wasn't ready yet because of, of the trauma that I've experienced that I still got a lot of healing to do because I'm still numb. I still feel objectified. I still feel like an object to someone who loves me. And so those are the things that we have to work on as survivors or that the community has to come in and help to give 
survivors rest and to be able to restore, to be able to, to really be rejuvenated. So that way I don't end up in healthy, unhealthy relationships. I don't end up in an unhealthy or complacent marriage or, you know, I'm not raising my kids at the bare minimum that I'm raising my daughter at my most healthiest place. And yes, that's a journey, but she's my number one, you know, mission right now. And so that's important, you know, so that's where I'm at right now. Um, but it's been beautiful. I've, I've been in such an amazing place that I really want people to understand like where I come from growing up in the hood and, and even with the traffic and stuff, seeing gangs, seeing drugs, being in, you know, being exploited. It's so like the culture, even of Los Angeles and just where I'm from in California is so different. And then coming to Texas where I never realized God sent me people to give me experiences that would plant small seeds for when I'm an adult, right? Like, yes, people tried to help me when I was young, but I just wasn't ready yet. I wasn't in a space to receive it. And now, you know, I'm in Texas and I, I sit out on my porch and I watch the sun set. You know, I was in Hawaii recently being in a wedding and all three bridesmaids and the bride are all survivors of sex trafficking. You know, and every morning I went out at 5 a.m. to watch the sunrise and to be appreciative of what God has created. That sounds so small to people that I've always appreciated that. Not from some average kid from the hood, like, and that has been exploited and who was taught that when the sun go down, horrific things happen, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm just in that place of gratitude of the people that he's placed in my life, the things he has given me um, and being reflective about how he's worked everything for my good. When I was in the streets, how he sent maybe a missionary on that track. Maybe when I was in group homes and he sent that woman to talk to me, you know, or maybe I was in everything. He worked everything out. I, um, the last bit of detail at one point when I was with my trafficker, you know, I was a little bit involved in gangs. And um, the other day, a woman, I was talking to a young woman who's still being trafficked. And, you know, her trafficker is is a pimp that is in a gang. And I had a moment with the Lord where I was like, Man, God, although the circumstances on how I was removed from the hood might have been a little bit extreme, I'm so grateful because I could imagine what my life would would look like being stuck. Stuck mm-hmm. in a sickness, stuck in brokenness, stuck, just stuck and thinking that's all that life it that's all that life has for you. And I was just grateful. And you know, you also I'm I'm recognizing in, in therapy I do a um a certain type of therapy called EMDR. I talked about it recently, which is it basically helps um, people that have experienced a lot of PTSD reprocess their trauma and not just talk about it, which is, has been extreme helpful. They've seen it in even people that have been in, you know, in the service um, and who just experienced a lot of trauma. Um, and so we're just talking about survivor's guilt of why me, like why me, what made it. And if I can give any component of what I've been learning about myself, talking to family was, um, my willingness to take responsibility for the things that I do have now and that I can change. Mm-hmm. Um, another skill is being open to relationships, being open to love. I'm so used to my whole life. I chased rejection, but rejected the love of Christ, rejected the love from people that were healthy because it wasn't familiar to me. Um, and so those were really good skills that I've always had. I just didn't acknowledge them or couldn't recognize them. And so for anyone else, that those are things that now when I see in other people and then I, I, I try to pour into other young adults is teaching them how to how to allow people to love them and why. 
um, and to build relationships because it's the only way that you can do that. It's the only way you can't do to it by yourself. And so that's where I'm at right now. You know, I'm not in a place of isolation. I'm just in a place of solitude. Um, do I have my up and downs where I have to get really laser focused on what God has called me to do? Absolutely. Because you can stay stagnant as well. So that's where I'm at. You know, it's not an easy journey. I have trauma reminders all the time, um, especially going in and out of friendships. I'm learning moving to Texas, especially being around in a godly community, going to church, being in Bible study. Um, I realize I still have a lot of growing to do in those areas because I've learned to not be defensive and that the world, not everybody is here to try to attack me or, you know, do you want to be right? I once heard someone say, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? And so that has helped me along in my process. And so that's that's where I'm at right now. Being a mom, single mom, navigating that, navigating the ups and downs of that. My child's father recently in California was shot, you know, multiple times and trying to navigate what life used to look like and how you let those things enter into your world now to still be able to be a present mom um, and then going to school and then working and honestly being obedient to the Lord. You know, I don't have a good job right now, um, but it's definitely, I'm learning that when you obey God and when you follow the path that he's created for you, he just shows up. And that's the biggest thing for me. You know, I don't like my job where I'm at, but guess what? I get to go to school. I get to flex my schedule. They're very, very um, mindful and very, they work well with with just being a single mother and maybe not having babysitting for Evelyn and stuff sometimes. And so even in that, you know, and then people showing up out of nowhere and wanting to give me a scholarship, you know, and being able to help me really rest and be like, okay, I'm working this job and don't pay that well. But someone else showed up and said, hey, I want to help you out. I want you to get through school, you know? So it's just all God. Hmm. That's, that's good that you've, um, that you're that you're here, and and I, I love to hear how. I love to hear how you kind of like. Um, uh, what's the word? Like like you 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 kind of are able to recognize where you're at in a sense of like, okay, this is my environment. This is where where I'm going with things. You're not, you know, you're you're aware of things around you, and that's that's really that's um that's a lot of growth, a lot more growth than I hear from people without your trauma, you know? Um, um, so, you know, inside this episode, um, this is episode two, which is like the first time we're kind of like really punching someone a little bit, um, right. in the gut to, to kind of give like, this is what modern day human trafficking is sort of look like looking like here's one aspect of it. And, um, uh, you know, it, Unlike some of our other episodes and and like episode three, four, five, where we actually do kind of focus on a little bit more restoration, like your restoration story is actually in episode three. So for those who haven't seen it, got to keep watching. Um, but you know, the, one of the reasons why we, we left it the way it was, was we, we wanted someone to kind of, and we wanted to kind of end the night with, uh, or in the, in the video with the idea of, um, why didn't you say anything? which is a quote that you gave. Um, I want to like help the audience understand and know what you mean by that. And what, what, how can we start to think to ourselves, I don't want to miss an Ori. I don't want to accidentally miss something like that. I don't, what, what's, what should I look for? Or what should I even do in that situation? 
You know, mm-hmm. I think someone feels like overwhelmed by that. I know I did when I first heard about like, wh- what would I even do? I mean, yeah, sure. Human trafficking hotline. I get it. But like, is that what I'm supposed to do? Like, you know, it's just this weird thing going on in people's heads. So maybe help, maybe help encourage and help them understand how you can see someone and do something and say something. So I'll give an example. I was in an airport probably a couple months ago and there was a woman that came in. She had a black eye and her nose, you know, her nose was just, I could just tell it had been bleeding and in her lip. I watched probably over 50 people stare at her and look at her and no one said anything. And I walked up to her, I handed her a napkin and I sat next to her. I'm like, is everything okay? And she said, actually, you know, I'm on a flight because I'm I'm running from, um, you know, I'm in a domestic violence relationship and I have nowhere where I'm headed. I just got to connect it with an organization. That's all it took. You know, we've heard stories about the flight attendant that thought something was wrong and she slid someone a note on a napkin. I think as humans, as bad as many people don't want to say, we don't say anything. We mind our business. Um, we see things that might be um, disheartening or that might be a red flag and we choose not to say nothing. We see a young girl with an older man um, or we see a young boy with an older man or things like that that just seem out of place and we choose to mind our business. I think the reason why I've done things like that is because the reason why I've said something is because I understand and because I know it, because I've seen things. Um, Anytime you see someone, um, like another example, I was at my daughter's um, swim lesson out here in Orange County, in Orange County. And there was a woman that by her actions, she was very timid um, when the, the, the coach was talking to her. It was very strong. I can just tell by her body language that something was going on. Well, when she lifted up, she had her hoodie on. Um, she had two dark circles, two black eyes right here. And one I could think, well, maybe she just has cosmetic surgery, something like that. And so I looked at her, I began to talk to her and I was like, oh, do your daughter always swim? And she's like, well, I don't really bring her all the time. Um, my husband do. And so we started talking and she's like, well, what kind of work do you do? And it was just casual conversation. I was like, well, I do a lot of work in sex trafficking, domestic violence. And that's been my kind of like my story and testimony. And she was like, wait, what? She was like, they have services like that out here. And I'm like, actually they do. They have programs for women who need to leave or men who need to leave um, hard situations. And she said, what are the names of those programs? And so it didn't, it didn't cause me to ask what's going on. I give her the opportunity. I give her the the resource and then she can take what she needs to. Now, she could have made a choice to say to me in that moment, you know, hey, I'm experiencing that, but I know that that was the best that I could give right there. And I think the biggest thing is just like, we see stuff, we don't say nothing. You know, we say call the hotline, but how many people actually dial 911 or call the hotline and call the police? You know, or if you're in a store and you see someone maybe buying a box of condoms, don't mean to be vulgar, but this is the stuff that happened or a lot of toothbrushes or you just know as a human being with a heart posture, I think the biggest thing is our heart posture hasn't changed to this. I think a lot of people still believe that it's a choice. They look at it like, well, she's old enough to do that. Like, you know, she's been doing this for a long time. So those are her decisions versus not seeing them as a human being, as a child of Christ, um, and somebody that's just broken and vulnerable. 
You know, I think that we might see people out in the open, whether if we're at a gas station and they're sitting at a bus stop, oh, she must be on drugs. Instead of asking somebody, does they need the help? And maybe if they give you the finger, maybe if they say what you don't expect or you want them to say, you then brush it off. All you can do is present an opportunity for somebody to give them a resource or even call. Do you need, are you okay? Do you need help with anything? Is there anybody I can call? If you don't feel comfortable about saying, hey, is there anybody I can call? Law enforcement, you say, is there anyone do you need me to call? It could be a family member they, they might need to call to get out. And so I think a lot of us continue to turn the other cheek um, instead of really acknowledging what's right in front of us. Now, some of the signs I mean that people have seen is it's just when you see somebody in distress. You know, there's never been a person that I have ever passed up that I have seen in distress. I acknowledge everybody. You need to be very mindful of the people that you see. Now, does it hide in plain sight where a woman or a young boy might not be beating up, beaten up or things like that? Absolutely. But I think that I pay attention. I'm very intellectually uh, aware of my surroundings. And so I can see a young dude. I, I came out of Disneyland the other day. It was a young boy sitting down on like outside of Disneyland, sitting on this thing. And I looked around. No parents was around at all. Um, he seemed a little distressed. And I, I said, hey, sweetie, are you OK? And he said, yeah. And I was like, where are your parents? And it just so happens that he's one of the kids that live in one of the hotels around Disneyland, right? And so I'm just very aware. And I think that a lot of people choose not to see things as well because we're so busy, you know? And I think we just have to acknowledge who and what's in front of us. Now it's different. Like I can sit here and say, what do people need to do? Because if you work in any service field, when you're in contact with people, um, there are just signs that you can notice, whether if it's someone bruised, whether if they're timid, whether if they're with somebody older, what if there seems like they don't really have control over their own belongings or their life. Um, in this day and age, a lot of stuff has just happened over the internet. Honestly, it's happening over the internet, even for women. Um, I was speaking with two women who are still currently in their life. And they called me the other day and, um, you know, their parents don't know, but the parent basically called me and said, you know, she hasn't been coming home. She's been leaving my grandchild here. I'm a little bit concerned. And so I was able to call and say like, Hey, what, what you been doing? And, you know, and this young woman said to me, why do you always call me every time I'm doing something like, and I was like, well, you just got put placed on my heart. And so I can tell she was intoxicated, you know, it's one in the morning. I'm tired by then. I'm asleep by then. The average person from working a long day is tired, but you're up. So it's small things. It's the things that honestly are out of the abnormal for most families. It's no different than with children, right? Like they're spending a lot of time on the internet. They're talking to people um, that are older than them. You know, they're lying about their age or their identity. It's those things that are really important that we have to catch early on as parents. You know, I just had a conversation with my niece the other day because of you know, little stuff. I'm a mom. So it was some older dudes at Disneyland and I caught her looking. I'm like, they ain't your age. So what you looking over there for? You know, and I don't know that has nothing to do with her, but it has everything to do with her environment and who she's been raised by. Right. So um, it's those things. And honestly, if I'm out in public, I'm just I'm very aware of what's around me and, and not because I'm hyper, you know, sensitive, but just because I'm paying attention to people. You know, I had a young man that walked in one day. I remember I was walking out the store and it the trafficking looks different, but it's also a form of exploitation. A young boy coming out the grocery store in Orange County, that's predominantly, right, Caucasian, 
Asian Pacific Islander, um, African American young boy. Clothes were really dingy. Um, school time, and you're out and you're selling candy. And I asked him, I said, "Sweetie, are you okay? Like, who's where your parents at?" Oh, I'm just here. My buddy, I said, "Listen, I'm not here to get anybody in trouble." Um, but why are you not at school? And he was like, well, I got to make money, you know? And I said, well, baby, you're only, how old are you? And he tried to lie and say 16. And he was like, no, I'm 12, miss. And I'm like, sweetie, you should be at somebody's school. And all I did was write my number on a piece of paper. I mean, what, what most somebody can do? Thinking Ooh. somebody could track me down and try to, it's not that serious. Some cases yeah. are when they're extreme. But in that moment, I acknowledged him. I wrote um, actually, at the time it was my mentor, I wrote his number down because he answered emergency calls. I said, listen, you need some shoes, you need clothes for school and things like that, or you, your parents need help, just call this number, okay? I could have gave him a resource, right? I could have done that, but knowing that African-American male who drove out here from Los Angeles, like, they're not going to call a resource, right? Because somebody has to look like them. It's the most simplest things that we choose not to do. It's little things. I didn't have to put him in my car and save him. All I let him know is I gave him that resource. And I also told him, listen, if you don't do anything else, I need you to stay in school. Because if that's all you have, I need you to do that for me. That's it. And letting him know, I see you. And life can get better. I promise you. It don't take that much. I think that we focus so much on the rescue and the once we identify of how do we save this person and it's not your job to do that. I think it's to be able to provide resources and help somebody get to the next stage of their life. I wasn't ready. 16. Yeah. Like how, yeah. Like I feel like you're, you're like kind of just given a strategy of like constantly plant seeds, Mm -hmm. right. That you probably will never see blossom. And and so it's a mindset of like, I will not see this blossom, but I will still plant this seed. Mm-hmm. And which is uh, in many ways, I feel like what Jesus calls us to do on a daily basis. Um, how many people would you say planted seeds in your life if you were to like Ooh. try to think about it? Honestly, over hundreds of people. I was just talking to my grandparents about that literally last night, how I didn't have appreciation for music, for art, for nature. Right. And I remember sitting on this exact couch I'm sitting on. And I was like, Grandma, I can't wait to go out the country when I'm old enough and I'm fresh out of the life, right? I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, my pimp used to talk about traveling, all this stuff. And my grandmother said, baby, we have beautiful beaches right here. Nah, I want to go somewhere else. And then I text her probably a while ago, about a month ago, and I was like, Grandma, thank you for telling me that years ago of how much beauty is surrounded and to stop and smell the roses right where you are, right? So mm-hmm. it's all those things that, or grandpa, am I gonna be too loud? Okay. She went, she hasn't came back yet. Sorry, sorry, audience. Um and it was just little things. I remember there was a African American male, and that's important, right? Like my trafficker was African American, that look I had really strained relationships, and I remember being still in the life at 14 years old, and I went to this group home, and he was an older male, and he used to tell me, it's I used to mouth off. I was very um, when people would might approach me on the streets and even if they wanted to help, I was the one that would cuss you out. Like, I don't need help. I don't need God. Leave me alone. Them church people took me out of the church. Like, it's all that, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember one day he sat down. His name was James. And he said, baby girl, you have such a, God has a plan for your life. And you are so beautiful inside and out. Your face needs to match your mouth. And I'm like, what? He was like, your face needs to match your mouth. Your etiquette. You are a young lady. It's going to be much harder for you anyway because you're a black woman. So 
learn how to refine yourself and embrace that. And so like it's, it was those small little things that you don't think are really important or really big. And they are right. I'm learning a lot of that with my daughter right now. Right. So she doesn't like to clean up. And so she'll cry about it. And then I'll say at home, sweetheart, there are going to be a lot of lessons in life, a lot of things in life, messes that you're going to make and you're going to have to clean it up. Right. You have to do it on your own. And so it was little things that people taught me. Um, there was a woman that, you know, in a group home that I remember when I first got out of the life or someone like Jim Carson. It was small things. I, I look back and I see how God, although I was like in juvenile hall or group homes and coming in and out of, the, out of the life of trafficking. It was just things that people taught me. They were life lessons like people didn't need to sit down with me and say, you know, you're living a life of, of prostitution or or exploitation and God has a plan. And I didn't need that. They were planting seeds of life. Listen, when you get an adult, you have to learn how to communicate appropriately because when you get out in the real world, nobody's going to hear you. And so it was all those things where people planted seeds that made me start believing, um, not only in God, but in my, in myself and my worth. So I remember at one point when I was at this group home, um, in orange County and, they would hug a lot, right? Like they would hug you. They would tell me how much you were worthy, all these things. And when I left the group home, I was going to go back to my trafficker and I was going to, we call it AWOL when somebody goes AWOL. And so I, I left the, the place, I AWOL, I went up the street and I had this whole plan in my head of how I was going to, you know, physically rob somebody, all these things in my head, I was going to do that to another individual. Well, when I got to the Stater Brothers, I started crying because I couldn't do it. And I called the people, this lady that was the house mom, and I said, Amy, what are you doing to me? What are you people doing to me? You people are crazy. What are you doing to me? Because I couldn't hurt another human being. Mm -hmm. Because it was the love, the love that people poured over me when I would scream, when I would yell. And, you know, to Bria or Regale, they would hug me so tight. I'm like, nope, I'm not letting you go. Like to show me that no matter how broken I felt, no matter how unworthy I felt, and sorry, audience, that's my daughter and my grandmother in the background, but um, I was loved and that I was worthy of love no matter how bad, filthy I felt. And I think they were life lessons. It's not this big grand thing that people try to make it seem with trafficking victims of like, my grandparents loved me right where I was. Like I would have never expected to to come and live with individuals who were from separate worlds from me, you know, in Cal Southern California. Like I remember first moving up here. I was like, my grandparents live in a gated community. Like you would accept me. You would love someone like me. And I think people miss that, that we feel that inside. Like how could someone like you love someone like me? You know, my, my daughter's grand godfather is a police officer that I met during training and, and doing first starting the work, first getting out of the life. And I remember the first time he invited me to his home, I was like, you would invite me to your home. And yeah, or why wouldn't I? And I'm like, no, 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 I don't think you understand. We're from two different worlds. And I think that so many of us survivors and advocates feel so <laughs> like we're two, we're from two different like galaxies or something because mm. Why would someone like you acknowledge me, love me, serve me, pour into me? Because I don't act like you. I don't talk like you. I don't come from where you come from. 
And I think that's just so important that the two worlds can also can collide, can collide. I can learn from you and you can learn from me. And so it's small things that we can give to these people. We can give to people who experience this stuff. And it's ultimately about seeing them, you know, acknowledging that they're a human being, acknowledging that they have something to offer, whether that's a skill, whether that's housing, whether those are the mechanical things or whether that's just a hello, whether it's just seeing them. You know, I had so much church hurt. And I remember the first time my grandmother took me to church again, you know, and and these people, I'm like, why are these people like this? This is not what I'm used to and accustomed to. You know, I was so used to being condemned and told I was going to go to hell. All these things versus what I'm experiencing. And so it's also about giving survivors and people that are experiencing trauma new experiences and opportunities to relive things in a positive way, right? I was trafficked right across the street from Disneyland in a Motel 6 before it became the best Western Plus, right? I can say and sit here and say, I never want to go to Disneyland because I watch people go in there, those families and do all that. Or I can say, hey, I'm going to go with my family with a new organization that took me to Disneyland for the first time when I'm an adult and got a new experience, mm. right? So mm. it was small moments. I can honestly say when it comes to kids, it's exposure. It's things that they might not see no value in it right now, but they will later on. You know, I when I was fresh out of the life, when I was 15 years old and I made, started making the transition, um, I remember going to like plays and operas and banquets and etiquette stuff and, you know, going to the universities, UCLA, USC and all these different schools to get exposed to stuff. And then being a college student now and being like, wow, I had no idea that those little small moments would lead to big dreams. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. think it is because maybe the kids are running around the campus. Maybe they're talking, oh, we got to walk. They're teenagers. What do you expect them to do? No different than coming from a healthy home and being like, and why we got to go down there for family church? I don't want to do that. It's because it's something they're so accustomed to versus kids that aren't. It's the same thing. And so I think it's about if you're a part of the community and maybe you don't service people in the front lines, but what can you do? Time, resources. I think those are the things that you can give. Maybe you're not in an environment where you might see trafficking, right? But maybe it's your time. How can you serve other people? Maybe it's your resources. Do you know people that might have job opportunities that can provide survivors that are ready to be in the in, in the, the work field? Um, it can be other things of like time that is intimate. You know, maybe I do a workshop. Maybe I go and serve in that way. Um, maybe I go and meet with the girls and, and meet or meet with the team. How can I help the team navigate working with them? Maybe I'm a business owner. What can I teach the team to start teaching them how to budget and manage money? You know, I met my grandparents, just to be honest, the house that I'm at right now, I met my grandparents at 16 at a Saddleback Skills for Life at a resource place. And what happened was building relationship. That's it. Relationship. Had nothing to do with trafficking. Yes, it was provided by a nonprofit organization for foster youth that were transitioning out of the system. But they decided to say, hey, like, they were open to having a relationship with me. Like, that's all it takes. Can I say that everybody can do that? No. Did they have, did we have our ups and downs? Absolutely. We're two from, two from separate worlds. Was there a middle person, Jim Carson, that helped navigate those things and did my relationship change over the years? Did it grow? Yes. I think that we make it so complicated than what it is. You know, every survivor that I've known, over 175 of them, whether they received services or they didn't, what really helped them in their life was connections and resources. 
Is there red tape in the system? Yes. So people that don't work in the system that is in ministry or might just be teachers or might be parents that find out about this issue and want to help. It's about connection. I'm not telling you to move somebody in your house. I'm not telling you to do that, but give what you have. That's all you got to do. Give it and then don't expect anything in return. I think as human beings, we want a return in a good way. We want to see it blossom, but it's gonna they're going to blossom in their own timing. And I think that's the biggest thing I'm leaving and learning in my own life, serving kids that guess what? What has helped me so much is that day when I went to go work with those young boys or when I'm working with a young girl right now in Chicago, guess what? She might leave tomorrow. But what I did was I gave my time. I gave all that I could. And at the end of the day, I showed up and I was present and I can't expect her to want to talk to me every single Thursday. I love you, grandpa. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. You know, so it's all those things that is so small, but really big. It's, it's, these kids are not asking for a lot. These young adults are not asking for a lot. Like my heart hurts because like I'm talking to younger adults that like I just want stability. I just want somebody to love me. I want people in my life to surround me. I am so blessed. When I say blessed, I have hundreds of people who are in my life that will show up for me. Mm. When life gets rough, when I moved to Texas and life got hard. How can we as a church make everyone feel that way? You know what I mean? Like, like that, that's not something that rare, this should be a rarity when you have, how many, how, how, how many, how many Christians do we have in this nation or professing Christians? How many churches do we have in this nation? Every person should have hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. How can, how can we, st- how can we start making society and our culture feel like they got a hundred people in their corner mm-hmm. ready to have a relationship with them as well as help with resources? How can we, how can we make people feel that way? Well, I think the first step is, so before one of my mentors passed away, Jim Carson, um, one of his nonprofits, he talked about, he wanted to start a program that was called Stronger Together. And what it was about was connecting with ministry workers, connecting with all different types of people that wanted to be in an individual's life. He was going to give you room because when you think about nonprofits, most nonprofits or organizations don't want you to get close to the survivors, right? Because they want to be mindful. But he created a program that was going to be vetted, right? That when you came in, Okay, you want to help an individual? Can you wrap your arms around this family, this mother, this single mother of three kids who's a survivor, who's who survived drug addiction, who survived, you know, her pimp or been in prison? All this? Can you wrap your hands around her? Can you wrap your family around her? And what does that look like? And what it looks like practically was like there was going to be a buffer. That would be me. That would be other survivors. Help the other family navigate that relationship. And what does that look like? How might it might ebb and flow? How it might get difficult sometimes and be able to have a middle person to say, to talk to the survivor and this individual to say, hey, um, this person is passionate and wants to help you and your family and wants to just love on you. You love me, right? You respect me. You trust me. The biggest thing is trust. You trust Ori. So do you trust that these people that I'm bringing into your life will do that as well? Yes, I do. And that's the thing. It's the middle person. Program and just somebody that's experienced something. It's hard to just say, trust me that these people are going to do the right thing. 
well, I don't even know you from Adam Eve. You're just a program. <laughs> like, like you need someone there that can build a rapport and a relationship. And so that's the practical piece. I think that the body of Christ, the biggest thing is you have a lot of people that have a lot of time sometimes. And I'm not talking about from jobs. I'm talking about even in age, a lot of our elders that can make time for those type of things um, and support families and support the mothers or support the children. And I think sometimes you want the hands-on stuff or it's, maybe it's help supporting the mom to give the, their her two children an opportunity to be in a sport and she can't afford it. But then we start slowly like, hey, we're going to help you put these kids in a, some type of academia or something. And then we're going to come to the games. And then we're going to come to the ceremony, right? It's those things, how you show up. How can you create opportunity for believers or non-believers, doesn't matter, however that looks, um, to show up? Because that's the biggest thing, is the consistency and the show up. My grandparents, just giving them an example, and other people have been to Evelyn's birthdays. Um, when I dedicated Evelyn back to the Lord, her godfather was there. Um, he thought that he would, you know, it would be a whole bunch of people. It was just them, right? Like, and, you know, when she has birthday parties, people show up. Christmases, Thanksgivings, like, it's the constant stuff that, what do you do with your own family? It's not that hard. And so it's the show up. How can you help support? Um, a woman named Karen has an organization called Hands to Feet. Every Mother's Day, you know, my father is no longer living, my mentor Jim, and she sent us a card. You know, she sent us some goodies. Like she sent us little things. I was like, wow, that's really sweet. You know, when you're younger, you're like, what you sending me a face mask for self-care? And I'm like, oh, thank you for this, <laughs> this lotion now that I'm an adult, right? And I'm budgeting and I'm all these things. I'm like, man, thank you, Karen, for that. It's little things. It's not that it's just to show up for them. But let me ask you this though, when, when it comes to someone showing up, which is extremely important. And I, and I, I would argue that so, there are people that do show up, but, but I think, you know, this, what's the heart behind it. And oh, yeah. if you know that you're kind of doing it for sort of your own self-righteousness or own pride, I feel like, like, if people did that to you, were you able to see right through it? Yes. Um, it is. My dad used to always talk about this, about how a lot of us that have experienced trauma will test people that love us. And he would say, they're not testing you. They're, they're testing the people that have hurt them, right? Because mm. they had a revolving door in their life. And I'll give you a good example. I have a mentor right now who's like my mom. I call her mom. My daughter calls her Nana. And she's up the street. She lives up the street. And Sherelle um, was brought to me through Jim. Same way through my grandparents, right? Jim seen an article, a newspaper. And he knew, no offense to anyone, as a Caucasian man and as a black woman, there were things he could not teach me, right? Mm. And how to navigate certain things. Mm -hmm. And so we were having this conversation. I'm like, dad, you just don't get it. You just don't get this part. And he said, okay, baby, you're right. And one day he's at the beach where he goes every five o'clock in the morning. He opens up the paper. And what do you know? Sherelle Jackson, top CEO firm, um, things like that. And give me one second. Grandma, you got to leave, right? Okay. Um, African-American woman. Um, partner in her firm from Los Angeles, California, uh, overcame domestic violence, comes from the hood, right? It was like right there. And he wrote her a letter, a simple email, a simple email and said, 
Hey, Cheryl Jackson, you don't know me and I don't know you. I don't want any of your money. But I got a young girl that needs to know you and you need to know her. I now have a stocking over their chimney, me and my daughter. Her whole family, everyone knows I am that woman's daughter. Hmm. Has it been easy? No. We just got into it the other day. Because <laughs> she has three sons, right? Never had a daughter before. And then we're both from the streets. And she's refined. And I look up to her. She's a businesswoman, like amazing. And she has, when Jim was alive, Jim would help navigate, like, listen. I remember we had an incident for one, at one time. I remember I was hurt because she left. But I wasn't hurt because she left. I, I was hurting because my mother left. Mm. And I was like, mom, why are you going with him? Like, why are you going with your boyfriend? My mom's a 60-year-old woman. Going with hanging out with her boyfriend. Girl, just with y'all all week. I'm going on with my boyfriend. And I remember it was like little Ori showed up. Not 20-something-year-old Ori. 15-year-old Ori that was, a you know, nine-year-old Ori that was abandoned showed up. And so I was scared. I was like, mom, like, why are you leaving? And it, it got to the point where I was like, well, I'm just packing my stuff. Me and my baby, we out of here. I don't got to deal with this. Like, I mean, somebody that put completely on stage, nobody would recognize, right? Now, she could take that and say, I can't do this with Ori. It's a risk. It's all this. And every time afterwards, when we just, the other day, we had a conflict because I was like, you do stuff that's convenient for you. And she was like, I love you. I give you my 100%. Now, if your feelings are hurt about something, you need to say that to me. Once again, younger Ori showed up, not adult Ori. And I was like, mom, I'm so sorry that I was disrespectful. She said, you didn't disrespect me. You hurt my feelings. And I love you. It's nothing that you can do to make me not love you or Evelyn. But how many people actually would do that? Most people would get in a conflict and say, Oh, I, I can't deal with this youth. I, I can't do this. This is really hard. Well, love is hard. You do it with your own kids. So I think that's the heart posture, right? It's, I could see right through stuff. I know that she loves me. I know my grandparents love me. I've also known when we had a moment when I first lived with them, we talked about last night. Um, they moved me into their home, coming out of their life. That's difficult, right? I left on New Year's Eve. I wanted to go out, hang out with friends. My grandparents said, no, it's unsafe. We don't want you driving all the way to LA in the car. We don't want you drinking, right? Instead, I lied, said I was going to work. Of course, his grandparents, they went up to my job to just support me. Like, baby, we're so sorry. Like, if you want to go out and do something with us, well, guess what? I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So they prayed. They said, you know what, Ori? You've been here for a while, and, and this is obviously something you don't want to do and abide by these rules. So you have to figure out a place. Most people like, you put her out. No, they didn't. I didn't follow the rules. I didn't listen. Did they still continue to support me? Absolutely. But I had to figure it out. How did they balance that, that tough love with also staying with you? Like, like, cause, cause you mentioned in your story how, um, and, and not in the specifics about episode two, but, um, if anyone who hasn't listened to season one of our podcast, Trafficking Free America, please go listen to Ori's story. But, um, you mentioned in your story that like your mom, you know, said I'm done. Right. What, what made this different? in this situation. I want to make sure that the audience understands that tough love can be necessary, but there's a big but there. And what is that? Well, kid, I'm different. I, I was employed. I had a job. Um, I had financial stability. And mm -hmm. so, and I also had other people I could go stay with in temporary, but what it did, it made me save my money to go get my apartment, to be responsible. Cause there's a difference between helping and enabling. 
And so that's the same thing with serving people, right? Um, I think the difference was was that I was 12 years old, still needing chances versus 19 years old and having resources, right? That's the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? So okay, yeah. No, you, I, I apologize. I was thinking that you were a little younger when you were mentioning that. So, so what? Okay. So let's 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 create a scenario that of like what, you know, I, I hear what you're saying there. So like the question is, in a general way, how do we show tough love by showing that we're not going anywhere at the same time? I mean, you have to also uh, the biggest thing that happened with let's say tough love, right? So the system is changing in California and across the nation. And I had multiple of you say to me when they got out of the system, they've received resources. People know about sex trafficking. They're providing with the help. The op- okay, y'all want opportunity? We gave you opportunity. And you know what they told me? The system coddled us. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? And they're like, well, when we got into the real world, nobody cared that I was a sex trafficking victim to give me an apartment. Mm-hmm. They don't care. When I went on my job interview, you don't care that I'm a sex trafficking survivor. I still got to come to work. So I think there's, there needs to be a healthy balance of stuff. Right. And that's what I had. I had such a great healthy balance. And so what that looked like was when I, so for example, younger survivors might have outbursts, they might get triggered. They might yell, they might do things like that Mm -hmm. um, and be upset, feel unsafe. And so they might do something. And so for me, I would like fight, break windows, stuff. Stuff like that. And I had a probation officer that taught me accountability. It's the biggest lesson I ever learned. And she said, after you do something, you made that decision. I want you to call me first before they call me. Because if they call me first, they're going to tell me their side of the story and I can't hear you. So I want you to call me after you have an outburst. That taught me accountability. I promise you for my whole life. That's probably why I'm so good at certain things because it taught me to take responsibility. And so I would be like, I'll be like, hey, Miss Wolfolk, which that's Evelyn's godmom. Isn't that beautiful? The relationship, right? That's Evelyn's godmom now, and now I'm my business partner. And I was like, Miss Wolfolk, she'll be like, what happened, Ori? And I'm like, well, I was on the phone with my mom. She says she doesn't want to do family reunification. So I got upset. I threw the milk carton and threw all the chairs down and broke the plates. Why did you do that? I was like, well, because I was mad. And then the staff hung up the phone on me and didn't give me time to say goodbye to my mom. Okay. So your feelings were hurt. You didn't get to say goodbye to your mom. Now, why would you go and break property that don't belong to you? Cause I was mad. Well, you can't do that. Would you do that if that was your house? No, I wouldn't. So don't do it there. Cause now those people got to clean that up. And so even though I might not have heard it at the time, it taught me to take accountability. But then she would also say, now, you know, your consequences, right? And I would be like, yeah, I'm gonna be on red, and I can't go to I can't go to the the game this week, or I can't go to the the out the youth event this week. And do you know why you did that? Why you can't go to the event? Yes, because I chose to when I got upset to do that, right? And she said, well, in a couple of days, if your behavior is much better, and if you cannot have any outbursts, then we'll reevaluate. Mm-hmm. Now, new society culture will say, no, 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 no. You that's a trauma reminder. Give her opportunity. But Ori in my head would be like, I ain't gonna get in trouble for it. I'm gonna keep doing it, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's the tough love part. It's it it's things like that, or and I can only speak because let's be honest, a lot of the tough love doesn't only happen until they get into service fields, if they're incarcerated, if they're in group homes, or if they're in foster homes. 
But tough love and relationships, like we just talked about, a young woman who's still in life called my grandparents, needed help and assistance. Hey, they helped her out, got her a ride, an Uber. They sent her $10 for what she asked for. Then after that, when you keep calling us like, no, you figured out how to get there. Now you got to get back. You know why? Because you're still using drugs. Mm. I, I, I can't keep doing that because last couple times we supported. And that's okay. And guess what? I'm still going to accept your phone call. I'm still going to come visit you. I'm still going to love on you. And Jim did that. Um, tough love looked like when I was speaking at one point, when I first started speaking, um, I didn't stop using at first, like when I was like fresh, fresh, like 18. And I remember I got intoxicated and was high. And I had a speaking event. And that man came in my house. He had a key to my house. She's like, key to my house. And he, you know, he called me, called me, called me. And we had that type of relationship. Mm-hmm. And that man came in there. Oh, dude, I ain't telling you to do that. But that was my daddy. He was hardcore from Brooklyn. You know, my that was my mentor. And literally, like... <laughs> There was water. I felt water on my face and I woke up and he was like, get up. And I was like, no, I went out last night. He was like, get up. You made a commitment to go speak to these people. Get your butt up. You decided to go out and get drunk last night. Go eat some food. Go drink you some milk. Get your butt up. He said some other things. Because like he said, get, <laughs> up. get up there and get yourself together. And I remember being in a car like, like half asleep. I remember it just taught me to like, you want to be an adult, you want to be grown, and you want to do grown stuff, then you better be able to handle your business the next day. Mm-hmm. And it's just little things. It was tough love. It was like, I remember I somebody broke in my car. I remember I lied, actually. Little stuff like this. I lied about somebody breaking into my car, so I didn't have my rent. So I called my mentor. I was like, oh, Jim, I didn't have my rent, blah, blah, blah. Somebody broke into my window. Okay, cool. Oh, my car got impounded for this. When really I was somewhere I probably shouldn't have been, right? And they got took him. And he helped. He supported. Guess what? Next time. Oh, dad, uh, I locked my key in the car. My money's in there. I don't have my rent. Figure it out. <laughs> that sounds so... It's like we try to support survivors in the things we think that they need when it's like... They're really, they really just need stability. They need stability. Mm-hmm. They need a healthy environment. They need opportunities the same way that you would give your own children opportunities. And so I, I know that those don't seem practical for people that are engaging. But if you want to engage with them, I think that the biggest thing is most people are going to probably want to provide services. And so when do you know when to stop providing services for someone? And I think that that door should always be open because you never know when someone is, is at their worst and they need the help. I think that you just have to, whether it's the programming or discernment. And I'm saying this as a believer, like you praying about things. So my grandparents are big on, they pray about everything, everything when it comes to that. And so it's, it's, it's simple stuff like that. Like you don't move unless the Lord says move to, you know, I'm spiritually asked for me too. When, when I need to help somebody, I had a young girl right now who needed help and I prayed about it. And I was like, you know what? I can't support you in this way, but I'll support you this way. You know, I'm not getting you a flight ticket back to California. Um, and then I know I know she's going to run again. I'm not doing that. But, hey, I'll get you a bus ticket. <laughs> and guess what? The bus might be longer, but there was a compromise. And so it's, it's stuff like that, right? If I want to help a young woman or a young man out, um, I'll say, hey, 
I got this one dude. He was being trafficked, a young boy. Um, I would get him Ubers. And to when he like, oh, miss, I need an Uber at my house. I said, I'm not doing that. You found your way to here. You could do it again. Like, it's only so much. Now, I'm not saying I've done it one or twice. I probably did it like eight times with an Uber. But then after the eighth time, I'm like, no, you going to your friend's house. I'm not doing that. And guess what? He found his way there, right? So it's been, it, it takes some. Well, I, I think, I think you got to earn the trust first before you exactly. can truly be tough is kind of what yeah. you're saying. It's like, like figure, I think people want to start out with a tough relationship. Oh no. Yeah. You have to be very gentle. You have to be very gentle. Um, I think the biggest lesson that I've learned for me and for what my father did was you have to meet people right where they were. Mm. And that's the thing he did. Yeah. You might want to meet me at the church. I don't want to meet at the church. I'm going to meet you at the Denny's. And that was Jim. Mm. And Jim used to always say, because people would tell him, those kids are just using you. Those girls and those guys are just using you. And you know what he would say? It's okay. I know, but they're not using me. I let them use me because you know what? They might be calling me because I need to eat because they haven't ate in three days. But guess what? In the 25 minutes that I got with them, I'm getting ready to pour into them. Yeah. And I think that was the thing is that, do I know that sometimes my kids might be like, oh, Miss Freeman, I need this. I need that. Or, oh, uh, yeah, are you busy today to come see me? Because I need to get my prom dress. But guess what? Did they really use me? Or I'm trying to give them an experience that I didn't have. Or that they that they that they deserve, and so it takes time. I think we want to rush things, even as a community, when you're doing this work, or if you want to get into this work, you can't rush trust. Jim always said that it takes a survivor like five to five to seven years to completely trust. Now, for somebody else, they're like, "Whoa!" But I've known Jim for over a decade now before he passed away, and so I always knew I trust that he could make the best decision for me. I trusted that he was on all my medical papers. That if I ever ended up dead or life support, I knew he wouldn't pull the plug or that he would make the right decision. I trusted that. But it wasn't until um, right before he died last year, we were at the beach and I can't explain it. I've always called him Pops. We all called him Pops. All of his kids called him Pops. All of his mentees. And it just happened naturally. We all called him Papa or Pops. But it was one day we were on the phone and, you know, when you're a trafficking victim, a lot of times you call your your uh, trafficker, your pimp, like daddy and stuff like that. And it was one moment when he was like, all right, baby girl. He was like, all right, baby. Now, anybody else would be like, that is so inappropriate. But it wasn't. It was so fatherly when he said it. He was like, all right, baby girl, I'm about to go to sleep. And it was so nurturing. And I could tell you after over 10 years our relationship took a pivot where I was like, Hey, that's my daddy. That's my dad. It's nothing. Nobody could tell me. And I remember walking with him on the beach before he died. Like he was talking to me on the phone the other day, dad. And he was like, all right, baby girl. And it like solidified us. Like, this is my father, you know, like anything traumatic, any perverted thing that, I've experienced it was nothing was that it was like this was my father and he was talking to his baby girl and that takes time and I think a lot of people have, please be dedicated for the long haul and the long ride 
And we know when your heart is pure. My grandparents, they're white, <laughs> come from Southern California, like different backgrounds. And they just love me. They love me. They sat up here till 10 o'clock at night talking to me about the Lord and how to navigate life. And they love me. They sh they've shown up. And it hasn't been easy. And it's not going to be easy. And that's what I'm going to tell people. I tell people it's not easy loving people that have experienced this kind of stuff. But it ain't, e it ain't easy raising your kids neither. So it's the same type of love. I think that it's the expectation. Stop placing expectation on why you serve and to keep serving. It's not that difficult. And so love with no expectation is, I mean, that's biblical, right? Don't be easily offended. Love doesn't expect anything. Like it, it just doesn't. The Lord wasn't like that. Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't expect anything for somebody to be washing his feet or, you know, meeting someone at the well that they had anything to give. And I think that's the key is that the people that you choose to serve and that you want to serve have nothing to give. So will you continue to serve them? And so that's the heart posture. You know, what does that look like practically in different fields? It's going to look different. But we know, we know, I know, you know, I, I have a great relationship with Kevin Malone and like him and his wife believe in me, believe in my vision and like, man, they've just showed up for me when I had to move to Texas, you know, like what's holding you back? I, I don't got it right now, Kevin. No, you leaving him in Maryland. No, you getting a body here. You're going to Texas. God called you there. You going with nothing in return. And I knew that, you know, Kevin don't look nothing like me. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so, but his heart is his passion. It's his, it's the biggest thing that we, that I, I use now from him is I'm like a bull in a China shop, right? Like it's his, it's his heart to want this stuff to, to be eradicated and change. And you know that, you know, when it's just something that people genuinely, like he genuinely wants to help survivors. He wants to help me. He wants to help them versus to be honest to the audience. So many people are jumping on this trafficking train. Like I want to do human trafficking work. I want to serve them. And like, you don't know how nitty gritty this stuff gets. Like, are you really in it for the good cause? Because it don't end up kids die on you. I've lost kids. Kids have been killed, have been murdered. Um, and it don't always end up good. Everybody is not an Ori Freeman. Everybody doesn't get the success story. Everybody's not a Rebecca Bender. Everybody's not a Leah Albright. Everybody's not, you know, um, a Josie Feimster or a Christina. They don't always end up like that. So will you still love? Will you still serve when you don't know how this story ends? I have a last question for you. Um, as people hear your story and yours, yours is the first story that they're going to hear in this series. What do you want people to think about, understand, and feel after hearing your story? What is the purpose you want your story? Um, what what purpose do you want your story to be or to have? I want people to learn how to really love unconditionally and not expect anything in return. Um, and to live a life of service. That was my dad's quote. And no matter what you're doing, whether you're some white guy from Brooklyn or some black girl from wherever, right? Little black girl from the hood. And like, I still have a lot to give. 
you know, and whether that's me being a school counselor, whether if I'm a mother, whether if I'm working at Walmart, it doesn't matter where I'm working at, I can still serve other people and love other people, you know, and whatever you have to give, give it because you can't take nothing with you. And I think my life mission is not only to live a life of service, but to die empty. I want to give everything that I have away, everything, all of me, everything that is inside of me that God has placed there. I want it out there for the next generation. You know, all the lessons, all the love that I have to give, like, I want to go like that. And I think that the biggest thing is that so many people think they have a hard posture, but we place conditions on our relationships. We place expectations on our relationships. I'm in a Bible study group. And I'm watching how people place expectations on how you want to serve Christ. That ain't the way it is. And I think it's the biggest lesson that I'm learning myself and that I want other people to know. Like, to just do it. Like, just love people. We place we place expectations on how we want to be loved. Listen, I'm all for self-care. I'm all for these this boundary stuff. And the Lord has given us boundaries because he loves us. But all this stuff, it's like, it's really about you. You really make it about you. You make it on how you want people to love you and how you want to serve and what you get to gain and how it makes you feel. It ain't about you. It's all for his kingdom. And so when we do a better job at that, then we can do a better job of really helping restore and redeem what has been stolen and lost in the boys and girls and the women and men who've been exploited. That's the biggest thing. And it's the biggest, the biggest lesson that I want people to get and that I want people to do is just to serve. Serve with all your heart. Serve however you can. And then just love with no expectation. And just do that. If you can do that, it makes it much more easier. And you don't know how many lives you can impact by doing that. You know, every person in my life, and it's hundreds of them, I wish people could see my family photo. They love me with no expectation. And it might not look like how they want it to look, but they love me because that's the way Christ loves us. You know? And so, I mean, that's, that's what I want people to do. Because, I mean, it's it's really no handbook to this. I think we try to teach people how to do it. Um, and I'm just learning, even in this field work, when you're working with individuals who've experienced sex trafficking, we want them to live their life the way that we want them to. And we don't meet them right where they are, you know. And so Casey's story is different than Josie's. Ori's story is different from Leah's. And Leah's story is different from Rebecca's. And Rebecca's story is different from Nisha's. And Nisha's story is different from Maui's. But my job is just to help get them there and get them on the path that God has called them to and God created for them. It is not my job to tell them what that looks like or even how to do it. It's just to help walk alongside them and just be there. People just want somebody there and that's it. You can give your time. You have time. You have enough over 24 hours in a day. You have enough time. And so it's just about where do you place your priorities and where do you place how you want to serve, you know, and that's serving God's kingdom and that's helping other people. It's not that complicated. We make it complicated. Like all these curriculums and pillars on how you serve people, just love. But a lot of people don't have love in their heart in that way because they're still broken. They still have a lot of healing to do themselves. You know, I've seen that. I'm in a I'm in the Bible Belt. I'm in Texas. And people love with expectation. 
well, it has to look like this. And you got to be doing this to, to be loving and serving the Lord. Or, you know, in order for you to be a part of this Bible study group to be loved on, you got to be, you got to be a certain way. And it takes a journey for people to get there. I remember what it was like smelling like marijuana. I remember what it was like high on drugs. I remember what it was like laying on my back and being raped. I remember those things. I remember what it's like for people to look with disgust and not have hardly anything on and people judging me. And you know what somebody did? A male, a white male at that. When I got into that group home and I got off the streets and I would come out with provocative clothing and we would be going to transitional uh, classes, he'd be like, uh-uh, you ain't wearing that. Go change your shirt. You can't get a job like that. Go put your clothes on. Like, and yeah, it was tough love, but it was love. It was like addressing it and not saying you can't go because you're dressed like that. It was like, this kid has just been sexually abused, sex, like violently raped over and over again. Of course she would wear that. But you know what I'm going to do? Teach her how to dress and give her some examples. Not that hard. Instead of talking about people um, or just make it bigger than what it is. When it, when it comes to that. And, and so we have a, we have a, I've seen it. I can't sit here and bluff to people and say, yeah, we're doing an amazing job in the, in the sex trafficking field. I'm not going to do that because a lot of times I sit in meetings with kids and what they're asking for, we're not giving. This kid is asking, they're telling you they don't want to be bounced around. They're telling you they want stability. They're telling you they want a home where they can be loved, where they want their picture on a wall and not see your whole family and not see their face. It's not that hard. You know, and so I can do that though, right? Because I've lived it. So I know what might be needed or how to interact with young boys or young girls or other adults and to be sensitive to certain stuff. But I still have to show up with my heart and not expect nothing either. I mean, that's the biggest thing. I don't I don't expect to be able to go to every graduation or to be able to be in that kid's life. It might it's gonna be like you don't always get the good in the stick when you come in contact with somebody that have experienced sex trafficking. Like and have lived through it. Sometimes you get the bad in the stick. Like when they're fresh out, when they're angry, when they're hurt, you might not get the Ori that has done some of the healing process. So just stick with it, you know, love with no expectation um, and just stay in it. Just stay in it and just be there because the right opportunity, I'm telling you, that time when I left my trafficker and Jim had to meet me at that Denny's, he could have said, or I always come to this Denny. It, this is the 26th time and you're never ready. Or he can say, you know what? Okay, Ori. And that was the day I wanted to go back. So don't close the door. Because you wouldn't do it on your kids. So it's the same thing. It's the same kind of love. Well, thank you, Ori, for your heart, your time, your um, passion and, and, and insight. Um, we're, uh, we're hoping that... Um, we're going to keep learning uh, to learn from the series and to keep learning after this series and, and ways we can uh, approach this. I like how you said, this is not a, even though we're going to have a study guide, even though we, even though we have it, uh, you know, this series, there's no handbook to this, mm-hmm. except maybe the closest one is um, how Jesus told us to love. And we have a scripture for that. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, thank again. Thank you, Ori. And I, I pray that um, everything goes well for you in Texas and, and keeps on going well. And we're praying for you and your, and your family and your daughter. And, um, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us on the trafficking free America podcast. And, um, in the season two of, uh, continuing and further discussion about our advocate series. Um, if you have not heard of, or don't know where to download our advocate series, 
please go to advocateseries.com and you will find a link to ultimately access all the videos, download our study guide. All this is for free. And we also put some additional resources on that website so that you can, as you deep dive into these episodes, you can uh, access our resources to kind of get a better idea on on, on educating yourself, um, uh, getting some ideas on how you can get plugged into um, ultimately uh, combating human trafficking if you feel inspired or you feel God calling you to, to do more. The U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking created this Advocate Series to help educate the church so that they know a little bit better of an idea of how they can react in a Christ-centered way on combating human trafficking. And one of the action steps we give is to, is to actually become an abolitionist. When I say become an abolitionist, I mean by going to usiaht.org slash abolitionist and signing up to be an abolitionist. It's our abolitionist project. It is ultimately a way for you to subscribe and receive resources. Every time, on a daily basis, we're trying to create content and find more resources and more ways to um, rally and unite uh, the church together and others together to um, combat human trafficking. And by signing up as an abolitionist, you get resources right away from us to do that. But we also ask our abolitionists to get involved in one of three ways. It is to either uh, help raise awareness. That could be anything from sharing things on social media, just continuing, uh, continually, continually talking about this with your friends and family, uh, those who are uh, you can influence in your community, possibly even taking our TFC program, our TFZ trafficking free zone program, bringing that to businesses so that they can become TFZ zone uh, trafficking free zones, and uh, may or maybe taking this advocate series to churches or other any group you want to and and helping raise awareness. Another way is to volunteer. If you want to volunteer, we have a program. We have several programs at the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking that you can actually um, uh, get involved in right away as a volunteer. But also, you know, this is a nationwide thing, and we are uh, continually partnering with other organizations such as safe homes, foster care agencies that are uh, in pregnancy centers, multiple places, multiple resources that are helping combat human trafficking or helping the marginalized that really affect, um, you know, those who are being groomed or brought into human trafficking. And so uh, if you are, if your heart is to volunteer, if you want to spend your time doing that, we want to help get you plugged in. So by signing up as an abolitionist, and if you want to volunteer, you can actually schedule a consultation meeting with our team at the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking to uh, help get plugged in in the right way, like where, where you're located, as well as your time, as well as your talents and skills and heart. We help try to partner you with the right, with the right organization to uh, to start start getting involved. And the third aspect is helping raise raise funds. Um, you know, even making this advocate series is thousands of dollars. Uh, creating content and helping raise awareness on a continual basis costs a lot of money. These organizations that we're going to help you help plug you into, everyone needs funds to help make this happen. Um, we are fighting a one hundred and fifty billion dollar industry. And if we're coming in with um, with uh, pennies compared to that, it's going to be a longer haul, right? It's going to be a harder fight, and and it's going to take longer, and there's going to be more victims. Um, money is definitely not power, but money is a natural resource to help those who are being marginalized. This entire thing started with money, and we can combat it with good. Um, if you have a talent for raising money, 
I want you to help us raise money. I want you to help fundraise, whether it's giving yourself, whether it's getting others rallied around this to give to the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, or it's rallying around your local organization that you know is combating human trafficking and you can help them. Ultimately, we need you to um, help raise funds. Ignoring the fact that funds are a need is ignoring the fact that people are in need. These funds will help those people. And I want you to make sure, I want to make sure you're researching. And if you want to talk to the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking to help make sure you're choosing a good organization that's truly putting, you know, their money where their mouth is, um, that's another thing we're trying to help too. We're trying to weed out those who are doing good compared to those who are maybe just, you know, exploiting the fight against human trafficking, which is also real. So guys, um, thank you for listening to, the, to today's podcast. Again, if you're ready to get involved after watching the Advocate series, I encourage you to go to usiaht.org slash abolitionist and actually sign up. Um, and if you have not watched this Advocate series, please go to advocateseries.com and download and watch this five video series and then go and sign up to become an abolitionist because I promise you um, you're going to feel um, pulled into helping in any way possible. Thank you.